Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you a very timely topic uh, about the United States Senate with author uh, and media contributor, Adam Gentleson. Adam, as I mentioned, is the author most recently of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Adam is currently the executive director of Battleborn Collective and a former deputy chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid. So he's seen up close and personal the issues that we have uh, with the modern Senate. He's a columnist as well for GQ and a frequent political contributor on MSNBC. And he lives uh, near DC in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And hosting today's talk uh, is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT, and he has a little bit of experience in politics, but I'm not going to slam him uh, today on his brief stint in yeah, the I mean, Trump administration. I mean, I mean, but with that, I'll just turn hey, it over listen, to him. Okay. Listen, okay, we're measuring this stuff by dog years at this point. Just think of those two poor dogs that were thrown from the White House after 37 days. Okay, three point three, six Scaramucci's for those of you that are counting in Scaramucci's. Okay. So, but apparently the dogs are coming back, but one thing is for certain, Adam, I'm not coming back. Okay. I'm going to be stuck here in salt talks, talking to great authors like you. Uh, but I, uh, just a little bit of a trivia note for your benefit. Uh, Senator Reed was super helpful to salt back in 2009. Uh, we decided to go to Las Vegas with a live conference when obviously way before the pandemic, uh, Vegas was being devastated by the last financial crisis. And so we elected to go there. He helped arrange speakers for us. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't make the first one, but he came to a few thereafter. And uh, no surprise to people that know me, I am a donor of Senator Harry Reid. So I'm fairly bipartisan when it comes to donating, um, which got me in trouble with Donald Trump. But let's move on because we're talking about policy and we're talking about what is right for the country. I thought that this book was fascinating. I'm gonna hold it up for everybody. Okay, it's Kill Switch. Um, why did I think it was fascinating, Adam? Because you're describing the history of the Senate that most Americans don't know. You're describing the procedures in the Senate, which as we learned from the ruse about the parliamentarian, the procedures actually matter uh, to the people in the Senate as they should. Uh, but you're also describing what needs to happen if we're going to have policy progress. And again, this is bipartisan policy progress, which is what I loved about the book so much. So uh, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you. And then secondly, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background. And then I'd like you to talk a little bit about the book, you know, the skeleton of the book, the history of the Senate, et cetera. Some of, don't give up all the great parts because I want people to go out and buy it. But I, I, I certainly want our, our viewers and listeners to learn from you. Sure. And thank you so much, uh, John and Anthony, for having me. It's, it's really great to be here. Um, and thanks for, for reading the book. Uh, so about me, I, I started in politics. I didn't think I was going to go into politics, but I sort of grew up around it. My, my parents were um, teachers. 
Um, but my dad did put no, us in. None of us think we're going into politics, Adam. It draws <laughs> us in, okay? It's like the Michael Corleone narrative, okay? Yeah. You, can't, you can't get out either once you're drawn in. I'm sorry True. to interrupt. But go Here ahead. we are. No, no problem. Um, but yeah, no, so for me, I was in college in 2003 in New York City, and um, it was the Iraq War that sort of got me turning to politics. Um, I went to work from there on the presidential campaign that year. Uh, and for the next 10 years, sort of bounced around between presidential campaigns and jobs in the sort of political campaign and nonprofit C4 type world. Um, and then I arrived in the Senate around 2010. Uh, and that was sort of the defining uh, professional experience for me. Um, I went straight to work for Senator Reid and spent my time with him there, started in communications, rose up to be deputy chief of staff to him. And so I was there through most of the big fights in the Obama administration. And, you know, the, the reason that I wrote this book is because of what I saw in my time there. And, you know, you, you get to the Senate and it's this mythical place and you're told that it's this bastion of wisdom and thoughtfulness and bipartisanship. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes been able to live up to that reputation. But what I saw was a Senate that uses that reputation to cloak itself and hide the dysfunction that lies beneath it. Uh, and the experiences I had there got me asking questions about why is it this way? And when you ask these questions, you get very unsatisfying answers. They tend to be answers about Senate tradition and they're sort of circular. It always comes back to sort of, it is this way because it is this way. You know, this is how the Senate wants it to be. Um, and I found those answers unsatisfying because what I saw was a Senate where it was shaped by power plays and it was shaped by individuals with narrow political interests, Republicans and Democrats, uh, who would make power grabs and, and change the rules and shape the rules and shape the norms and then explain it in, the, in terms of Grand Senate tradition and try to explain how they were the ones standing up um, for the framers vision and stuff like that. So I thought it would be helpful to write a book that tried to level set this and ground all of this talk in what the framers really meant and what they really intended the Senate to be. And I'm, I'm not an originalist here. Um, I wouldn't claim that we should hang on the framers every word for you know, thinking about how, what our laws should say and what our policies should be, but they did design a system that was capable of change and capable of adapting and meeting the challenges of new eras. And what we have today is a system that is incapable of change, that is incapable of passing common sense bipartisan bills that have broad public support. Uh, and I think the Senate is on the verge of becoming just another failed institution in American life. And if it is unable to adapt, if it's unable to change, if it gets too obsessed with preserving itself in amber, um, it's going to be a failed institution and the country is going to be worse off for it. So that's uh, what brought me to this book and what I hope the book uh, does offer readers, tearing down some of that myths, cutting through the fog and trying to get down to, to what it was really supposed to be and how it can change. So, so okay, so let's go back because I think this is instructive for our listeners uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the Senate is actually in parts of our Republican democracy are designed to protect minorities. I'm not necessarily talking about black or brown people. I'm talking about people that are in the minority as it relates to voting. And so we didn't wanna have mob rule or just popular vote rule today. We wanted to empower the states with some levels of rights and some levels of representation. So the Senate is the mechanism for that. It is effectively two senators in Rhode Island, two senators in California, even though Rhode Island's population is minuscule compared to California. Right. Uh, James Madison, you write about James Madison in the book, in the beginning part of the book, 
that explained the dangers of giving veto power to minorities potentially outweighed the benefits. Um, and so just for, for our listeners, step back for a second. Tell us what you like about the Senate. Tell us what you dislike about the Senate. And tell us about why the Senate was formed in the first place. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, the Senate was designed to protect minority rights. And when, like you said, when the framers were talking about minorities, they were talking about minority factions. And specifically, they weren't really thinking about vulnerable populations. They were more thinking about the status quo and, and the people in power. One of their overriding concerns was the threat of mob rule to property rights. They were basically afraid that the people were going yeah, to- Yeah, and they had, to get these, they had to get these SOBs to ratify the goddamn constitution. So they needed each of those colonies, which were becoming states, to do so. And so therefore, this was an empowerment tool for that as well. Fair enough? Right. Right. Fair enough. And, and you know, so, I mean, I don't want to, you know, misportray the Senate. It wasn't designed to be a bastion of, of democracy per se. It was designed to be a bit of a break on the system uh, and, and provide that protection to minority factions against the threat of mob rule. But the whole system itself was also supposed to provide that check. You know, the, the checks and balances weren't just the Senate. It was having a bicameral legislature, having a judiciary and having a president. Um, and so it was the whole system that Madison designed that he saw as providing checks and balances. Even today, if you take the filibuster out of the picture, the United States still has more checks and balances, what political scientists call veto players, uh, than any other modern democracy. So there were, there were a lot of checks even without the filibuster. Um, and I think that's good. The Senate should provide that check against majority mob rule. Um, it's a place where you know, legislation goes to become more thoughtful, to be debated more thoroughly, to try to reach consensus. All that is very good. But what the framers were trying to do was strike a delicate balance. And we've lost that balance today. Um, as you said, Madison, who was sort of the chief champion of minority rights, wrote extensively about the importance of protecting minority rights. But he also very explicitly said that it was the goal was to provide the minority a voice in the process and a guaranteed role in the process, but never to provide them a veto. And he was explicit about this. He said, you know, when push comes to shove, basically, I'm paraphrasing, um, if, if you know consensus could not be attained, the majority should go forward. He called majority rule, quote, the Republican principle. This was foundational for him. Um, and the reason it was, was that the framers had just had firsthand experience with what happens when you allow a minority to have veto power. Because in the Articles of Confederation, you know, the first draft of American government, the Congress in the Articles had a supermajority threshold for most major legislation. And it was a complete disaster. They couldn't pass anything. It crippled that emergent republic during wartime. And they hated it. So they were very clear that they wanted to have checks and balances, but they wanted all decision points within that system to be majority rule because they had seen firsthand that if you create a supermajority threshold and by doing so giving the minority veto power, because you know 40% can can stop what what 50% or up to 60% want to do, you're going to create a crippling system. So they called it. I mean, they, they said this explicitly. So that's, that's the balance they were trying to strike. And we've tilted that balance far too far in the direction of giving the minority too much power. And the Republicans have taken advantage of this, of course, because they are in the minority. If you look at the voter registration, but yet states like North and South Dakota, they have the population of Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, yet they have four senators between those two states. And so the Republicans have figured out how to use these uh, minority rules to their advantage. You know, Democrats from time to time have done as well. I'm not necessarily trying to pick on one group. Right. What is a filibuster, Adam? Tell our audience what a filibuster is. 
So a filibuster is not what you think of when you think of a filibuster. It is not Jimmy Stewart standing on the floor giving a long speech. At least it's not anymore. Right now, all a filibuster is, is the ability of any individual senator to raise the number of votes it takes to pass a bill from a simple majority, where it was for most of the Senate's existence, and technically still is today, if you can get there. But uh, what they are able to do is put a threshold higher than that majority. Today, that is 60 votes in the path of a bill's path to passage. And to throw that hurdle up, to throw that 60 vote hurdle up that every bill has to clear, uh, they don't have to debate at all. They don't have to go to the floor. They don't have to explain themselves. Uh, they don't even you know, have to make a public statement of any kind. All they have to do is send an email. They can even have their staff just send an email to what's called the cloakroom, which is sort of the nerve center of power. Each party has one right off the Senate floor when you see C-SPAN or walking through those doors on the side. Two of those doors lead to, to one leads to the Democratic cloakroom, one leads to the Republican cloakroom. So you just have your staff send an email and that automatically with one email makes a bill that should have a majority vote threshold for passage go up to 60 votes. Um, so that's all a filibuster is today. So why uh, didn't the Republicans do that on the current spending bill? Well, so there's one category um, of legislation that is exempt from filibusters, and that's anything that can go through this process called budget reconciliation. Um, this was a process created in the 1970s that was supposed to be sort of a fast track for budgetary procedures. Congress was trying to sort of take back power from the executive at this time. This was post-Watergate. And so they wanted to say, you know, the, the president had too much power. The president was setting the budget and the spending priorities for the entire government. Congress was trying to take that power back. So they created a special fast track procedure to make it really easy to pass anything budget related. Um, and then they made and then people started using that fast track for all sorts of things. So in the 80s, Robert Byrd stepped in and said, here's a, here's a new set of rules that restricts what can go through this fast track. Uh, and the basic restriction is that a policy's impact has to have a primarily budgetary impact. And the person who decides that is one individual, the Senate parliamentarian, an unelected person who um, both sides respect, but, but gets to make that decision unilaterally. And, you know, it's a pretty restrictive definition because oh, the, Senate, the Senate parliamentarian and parliamentarian has now become famous again, was once famous in 2001. Right. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us why they're famous again today. Yeah. So in 2001, um, the Senate parliamentarian had a big role in deciding the um, control of the Senate and um, uh, some big debates that were going on around, around the Bush tax cuts. The Bush tax cuts were going through reconciliation, this process, which put them in the spotlight. Uh, and so they had a big, big role to play there. And so that's the role they're playing today, where the problem with, with what Democrats are trying to do is that, you know, Republicans tend to use reconciliation for things that reconciliation was designed for, like, like tax cuts. It's just that matches up better with their policy agenda. It's easier for them to push tax cuts through a budgetary process than it is to push COVID aid or minimum wage increase through a budgetary process. But just to demonstrate how, how restrictive this process can be, you know, minimum wage does have a major budgetary impact. There's no way to argue it doesn't. Right before this ruling came down, this Congressional Budget Office came out with a report demonstrating um, hundreds of millions of dollars in budgetary impact for the minimum wage. But even that level of budgetary impact didn't meet the standard of reconciliation, which is it has to be primarily budgetary. So even though obviously a minimum wage increase would have a budgetary impact, it didn't rise to that level. And so that's how restrictive this process can be. So as people think about what else can move through it, I think people are trying to force climate change policies through immigration policies. I think now that we know where the parliamentarian stands, it's going to be hard to force these other policies through it. If minimum wage doesn't have a primarily budgetary impact, 
I think it's going to be hard to argue that climate change policies or immigration sure. policies have a primary. No, listen, I think it's fascinating. I want to go back to the filibuster for a second, yeah. and then I've got some other follow-up questions about it. But uh, you write in the book uh, that a very um, – uh, August gentleman, John Lewis, who's now deceased, he said that the filibuster is a Jim Crow relic uh, and the harm allowed by the filibuster extends far beyond Jim Crow. What did he mean by that? Uh, give us the historical context that he's uh, uh, speaking about. So the filibuster is deeply rooted in historical efforts to oppress Black Americans. Uh, starting with the effort to preserve slavery in the 19th century. The chief innovator of what we would think of as the talking filibuster, the Jimmy Stewart style uh, filibuster, was John C. Calhoun, who uh, used it to increase great, the power. Great new biography, by the way, about yes. Calhoun out, uh, came out about two weeks ago. Yes, um, really recommend But yep, go ahead. Fascinating character. You know, there should be a, a musical about him, but he would, would be an anti-hero. But um, but he, you know, what happened was the, the, you know, the country was moving towards abolition and Calhoun could see that the majority of the country left to its own devices would abolish slavery eventually. Um, so he needed to increase the power of the minority to stop them from doing that. And so that's why he started to innovate the talking filibuster. But all through the 19th century, there was no rule that allowed the filibusterers to raise the number of votes it took to pass a bill. So the best you could do with this talking filibuster was to delay bills by giving a speech in the way that we tend to think of. What happened in the Jim Crow era, this is when senators figured out how to start using the filibuster to increase the number of votes it took to pass a bill. There was a rule put on the books in 1917 in response to a very embarrassing filibuster. The Senate was sort of humiliated when they filibustered a bill that President Wilson was trying to put through to arm American merchant ships. Um, there was a big public backlash. Senators were being burned in effigy across the country. So the Senate came back and said, all right, we need to give ourselves a tool to end filibusters when they get too extreme. And so they created what's called a cloture rule. And you can think of cloture as closure. It's bringing closure to a debate because every bill has to pass through this debate period before it gets to final passage. And if you're being filibustered, the only way to end that debate period is through a closure vote, bringing closure to that debate. That vote was set at a supermajority threshold. And the idea was that this would be a tool that senators could reach for if, they, if a filibuster was going on too long and a reasonable group of senators could come together and say, all right, that's it, guys, wrap it up. Let's move on to the, to the final vote, which was at a majority threshold. During so, this period, Southern senators started using the filibuster and sort of grafting that supermajority threshold onto the filibuster to apply effectively a supermajority threshold only to civil rights bills. Uh, civil rights bills between the end of Reconstruction and 1964 were the only category of legislation that was stopped by this supermajority threshold for 87 years. And I just want to make one last point on this, which is that we sometimes think that maybe America wasn't ready for civil rights until the late 50s and 60s, um, but the evidence shows otherwise. Um, bills to end lynching, bills to end poll taxes, and bills to end workplace discrimination were passing the House of Representatives by wide margins. They were coming over to the Senate where they had majority support, and they had presidents of both parties ready to sign them. In fact, Republicans were much better on civil rights during this period than Democrats. Uh, the only thing that stopped them was the Senate filibuster. The American people wanted action on civil rights. Gallup polled the issue of anti-lynching laws in 1937 and found 72% of the American people in support of anti-lynching laws. They polled uh, anti-poll tax laws in the 1940s and they found upwards of 60% of Americans in support. So we could have had action on civil rights decades before we started doing it. 
uh, but the only thing that blocked it was the Senate filibuster. We're, 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 we're trying to figure out who the 28% is, Adam, that, that that's, I guess, for lynching. But I guess those are some of the people that stormed the Capitol, their descendants or some of those people. But the reason, again, I think it's important to reference this. The reason why this book is so important is that I think the, the average American, particularly Americans that are m- managing money, like many of our viewers, they don't understand the system and the processes that are in place that are actually sludging up the ability for social progress, human progress, policy progress, uh, all of this uh, Byzantine stuff that you're describing very clearly, by the way, uh, is something that Americans need to know about so that they can uh, help to force a change, uh, procedural or otherwise. So how is the- If I could just stick on this Jim Crow era for one second, because I think it demonstrates an important point. Please. So, you know, so this was, you know, the early first half of the 20th century, right, where we built post-war America. We built the middle class. We, we, you know, advanced a lot of the policies, the GI Bill, um, you know, building the highway system, all these things that we think of when we think of what made America great and allowed the middle class to thrive. What's really important to think of during this period is that every other bill besides civil rights passed or failed in the Senate based on whether it could secure a majority. Medicare, uh, there's a great memo from LBJ's top legislative aide writing to LBJ saying that he's confident Medicare is going to pass because he could count a majority of senators in support of it. After it was clear it was gonna pass, a bunch more senators jumped on board and it got up to 70 votes, but Medicare needed to clear a majority to pass, that's it. Uh, It never faced a filibuster. So only civil rights, was the only category of legislation that was forced to clear a supermajority threshold during the first half of the 20th century. So you look at the experience of every other issue and you look at civil rights, every other issue was dealt with in a relatively timely fashion. America faced the challenges that it, that it uh, was facing successfully, more or less. On civil rights, it failed. Today, we are applying the standard that we applied to civil rights to every other issue. Every other issue is being forced. Except for the budget stuff. Except for, yes, that's right. 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 Okay, so so there's a couple of Democrats that want to keep this in place, right? Joe Manchin's one of them. Um, right. wh- wh- why? Why would they want to keep this in place? Well, I'm not totally sure, but I think if you ask Joe Manchin, he would say that it's because of Senate tradition and, and bipartisanship. And Kirsten there's an argument. Cinema, I guess, from Arizona is one of them as well, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Why? I with, well, I think what they would say, I'm trying to do, do their argument objectively is that the filibuster is the last thing that would help facilitate bipartisanship. Because by insisting that you need 60 votes in this era where neither party is likely to control 60 votes in the Senate at any point in the foreseeable future, it forces you to have bipartisanship uh, because by its very nature, you have to have some Republicans involved to get the 60. Um, But I would argue that the filibuster is actually stifling bipartisanship because the 60 votes is pretty much an arbitrary number that they arrived at through a series of reforms through the latter half of the 20th century. Um, And you see a lot of opportunity to maybe get a few Republicans on board with certain policies and get you to 52, 53, you know, maybe even 55 votes, Um, but you can't get to 60. And the impossibility of getting to 60 in our polarized environment means bipartisanship is never gonna happen. I look at things like the vote to call witnesses in the Trump impeachment trial. You actually had five Republicans cross over and vote with Democrats on that. So that was a bipartisan vote. You only need to clear a majority in that case, so it succeeded. But let's say you had that on an infrastructure bill and five Republicans crossed over and voted with Democrats and you had 55 votes for 
an infrastructure bill. That would be a great bipartisan achievement, especially in this day and age, to get five Republicans to support it, but it wouldn't pass because you couldn't get to 60. So even though it seems like it would facilitate bipartisanship, by setting a basically impossible standard, it's actually making it impossible to get anything done and stifling real opportunities for bipartisanship. So at the same time that this is going on, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was instigated by your former boss, uh, some of these confirmations that once required 60 votes are now down to the minor, majority, right. uh, which was working well for Democrats. And then all of a sudden, President Trump flipped it on them and it started working well for Republicans as it related to Supreme Court justices and federal judges. Uh, tell us the history of that. Tell us what uh, Harry Reid got right and what he got wrong. Yeah, sure. So this is, you know, the, the debates over nominations, and particularly judicial nominations, go back to the 1980s. Some people would trace it to the fight over Robert Bork's nomination under President Reagan. Um, and this was an issue, you know, that both sides argued over. Under President Bush, Republicans uh, tried to go nuclear themselves to uh, confirm some judicial nominees. Um, that was when this gang of 14 arose and, and sort of took the wind out of that uh, effort and forced a compromise. Um, but this is sort of 2013 and Reid's decision was sort of the culmination of a decades long fight over nominations. What Reid was facing in 2013 was Republican obstruction that had gotten uh, beyond any historical reference point. Uh, President Obama's nominees, and I'm talking about his judicial nominees and his nominees to cabinet positions, faced, the, let me put it this way, half of all filibusters in American history against presidential nominees were waged against President Obama's nominees. The other half of filibusters against presidential nominees were all of American history combined. So that's how bad it was. It was extreme. And so what we faced in 2013 was Obama had just been reelected and nothing had changed. I think there was a brief period after his reelection where people thought the Tea Party fever would break. Republicans would start working with Democrats. That wasn't happening. His nominees were still being obstructed. He was on track to have the fewest judicial nominees confirmed of any president uh, since before Reagan. So Reid decided that the only thing he could do was to go nuclear effectively and lower the threshold to confirm nominees from 60 votes to the majority. Um, where it is today. Um, he exempted Supreme Court uh, as the one category that would remain at 60 votes because we just simply didn't, didn't have the votes for it. Um, but every other uh, nominee, the threshold came down to 50. What that allowed us to do was to, convert, to confirm a wave of Obama um, judicial nominees in the year and a half that we still had the majority from 2013 to, to 2014. And so that got Obama on par with all other presidents. If we hadn't gone nuclear, Obama would have left office with the fewest nominees since Reagan. Trump would have arrived with even more uh, open vacancies to fill. Now, you could argue, as some have, that by going nuclear, we let Republicans confirm more judicial nominees. Um, that's a valid argument. I personally believe that if Democrats, if the filibuster for nominees had still been in place, and Democrats had been filibustering Trump's nominees in February, March of 2017, when he was still riding high, Mitch McConnell would have gotten rid of that filibuster in a heartbeat uh, and confirmed all of the nominees he was going to confirm anyway. And then we wouldn't have confirmed this last wave of Obama nominees. So I happen to think that it was worth it because of the nominees that we were able to get confirmed. I think McConnell would have gone nuclear himself. We know that he values judicial nominees more than anything else. I think the idea that he would have let Democrats stand in his way with the filibuster is unsupported by the evidence. Um, so that that went through. If, if anything, I think that what Reid got wrong was not going far enough, uh, not lowering the threshold for Supreme Court justices. He, he probably would have if he could have, but he couldn't get the votes. 
I like to think about how the Merrick Garland fight would have been different if Democrats had only needed to get 50 votes to confirm Merrick Garland instead of 60. It was very easy for McConnell to keep, you know, 14 Republicans from breaking away um, and getting to 60. It might have been a lot harder for him to, to prevent only three or four Republicans from breaking away. So, you know, I think we should go further. I think a majority vote Senate fundamentally benefits progressives and liberals more than Republicans as from a progressive perspective, but even from a healthy balance perspective. I think our country is in a good balance when liberals come in and expand the social safety net, expand rights uh, to new vulnerable populations, and then conservatives come in and trim it back and cut back spending. Like that's a healthy balance. But right now our government can't get anything done and we're failing to meet challenges like global warming and income inequality and all these things. And we're, we're crippled as a country. And so we, we've lost that, that balance between the two sides. So, it, you know, listen, you're, you're excellent at explaining it. You're even better at writing about it, by the way. I thought the book was phenomenal. I have one last question, then I have to turn it over to the millennial. Although, Gentleson, you look a little bit like a millennial to me, too. So I'm probably going to get mad at you before this right thing is cup. over. <laughs> yeah, you're right at the cusp. We two young people. So I may smack your two heads together. But the uh, the title Kill Switch, I think, is a, a very effective title. Drew my eye. Caused me to order the book, frankly. Uh, and then once I got it, I started reading it and I became fascinated by it. Um, why did you title it Kill Switch? And what is the reception for this in Washington, D.C.? Well, I titled it Kill Switch because I was writing it in the basement and I was looking at the electrical box in the basement and thinking to myself, you know, what is something that shuts down a system? And, you know, in your electrical box, there is that kill switch that shuts down the, the entire system. And that to me is what the Senate has become. Um, you know, we think of it as a cooling saucer, a place where good ideas go to be, you know, uh, cooled and, and developed thoughtfully. It's not that anymore. Now it's a kill switch. It shuts down our entire system's ability to process change in a thoughtful, constructive, bipartisan way. Um, so that's how I came up with, with the title there. Um, the reception, honestly, has, has been very encouraging. Um, I've been uh, very pleased, not just with how it has been received by Democrats, but also received by a lot of conservatives. Um, uh, Max Boot, the conservative uh, intellectual, uh, said that my book convinced him uh, that filibuster reform was necessary. David Frum, a uh, former Bush speechwriter, has written very uh, positively about it in The Atlantic. Um, uh, so I, I've, I've been, I, I think people have engaged with the material in a thoughtful way. Um, I, I, my politics are on my sleeve. I write, I state that in the book, uh, but I tried to approach it objectively to give Mitch McConnell equal time to try to help people understand what makes him tick, not just slam him. Um, and the same with, with Democrats and Republicans throughout the era. I mean, you know, as I explained in the book, Republicans were much better on civil rights than Democrats for a lot of the 20th century. Uh, and I tried to give to give credit where due there. So um, I've been very happy with the way it's been received. Uh, I hope uh, folks, if they're interested, will, will um, give it a try. Uh, but I think it's 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 gotten a good reception so far. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. Uh, I hope a lot of the things that you're recommending do come to pass for the United States. They can be very beneficial. And I think what you're saying is very balanced in terms of the course corrections that are needed, but also the expansion of our society as it relates to social justice and more progress for people that, for whatever reason, have been left out of the society. And so, uh, you know, one of the books that uh, I'm sure you've read or know about is Jill Lepore's book, yes. uh, which really writes candidly about the American historical achievements, but also some of the things that uh, were setbacks uh, for America as it's rising towards social progress. So 
Uh, amazing book, uh, Adam. I got to turn it over to your fellow millennial. Okay, so he'll try to outshine me now, but that's fine. In the meantime, I'm, sh- I'm showing your book to hopefully stop him from outshining me. Okay, <laughs> the book is fantastic. Go ahead, John Dorsey. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly relevant book, and I don't know that you wrote about it uh, with foreshadowing of the context that we exist in today. So it, it couldn't have been more timely in terms of uh, what's happening in Congress. But you talked about Mitch McConnell, so I want to go deeper into that. You know, from a distance, I look at McConnell, and it's hard to figure out exactly what does make him tick and what his end game is and what he really wants. You know, he's somebody who has as much as anyone prevented progress from the left, but he also has been critical of Trump. He voted yes on Merrick Garland's confirmation uh, this week. And and he's somebody who every once in a while, he throws you an olive branch to, to signal that maybe he's not unreasonable and he's not just an obstructionist, but what does make him tick? And what's the method uh, in the madness? What makes him tick is a desire for power. Um, I think that's that's basically, and I don't even, I don't say that necessarily in a, in a critical way. I think that is probably true of Senator Reid as well. Um, but, but what makes McConnell especially effective at what he does is that he's able to cloak that sort of naked drive for power in this sense of institutional preservation and tradition. And he's better at that than anybody I've ever seen. But what was interesting in the research for the book is you go back and you see that this was a pattern and that folks like Richard Russell of Georgia, who was sort of the biggest champion of the filibuster uh, in the middle of the 20th century, and an avowed white supremacist. I don't use that term lightly. His own words, he stated that his, uh, he said, uh, any Southern man worth a pinch of salt would give his all to preserve white supremacy. Uh, He was very open about the fact that his mission in public service was to preserve white supremacy. So I I don't use that lightly. Those were his words. He, similar to McConnell, uh, was an expert at, at making massive power grabs and changing the Senate in, in big ways and, and strengthening the filibuster in his own time, but convincing everybody that he was doing it in the service of, of tradition. John Calhoun in his own time, same thing. He was the first person to start grafting this idea of minority rights onto obstruction and saying that we're not obstructing, we're trying to preserve minority rights. So I see a line um, throughout history from Calhoun to Russell to McConnell uh, in that ability to advance your own political interests and change the Senate in ways that advantage you, but convince everybody that you're doing it in the name of tradition. Um, so I think it's it's that what makes him tick is that drive for power, and what makes him effective at it is this ability to sort of present himself as as an institutionalist as he does it. And his dislike for Trump, do you think that's born out of sort uh, sort of a moral objection to things that have happened, whether it be the insurrection or things prior to that, or do you think it's the fact that Trump threatened his sort of supreme power uh, over the Republican Party and how it operates? I think that McConnell has a complicated relationship with Trump. I actually think he owes a lot to Trump. He, as I write in the book, in the period between 2014 and 2016, McConnell was in trouble. He was uh, the top target of the Tea Party, um, who had just ousted John Boehner as speaker in October of 2015. So this was a very credible threat. And they were coming after McConnell and saying, you're next. And Mark Meadows, uh, Mick Mulvaney, when they were in Congress, were quoted saying, we're coming after you, McConnell. And so when Trump came onto the scene, you know, McConnell opposed him as he rose to the primary. But once he got the nomination, McConnell realized that Trump, he could sort of draft in Trump's wake and Trump would protect his right flank. And so I have trouble crediting McConnell's objection as deeply moral because through most of the four years of Trump's rise and time in power, 
McConnell did everything Trump wanted him to do. He protected him through two impeachment trials. He protected Trump. It's sort of lost to memory now, but when Trump made a major power grab to end the government shutdown and unilaterally shift funds in a massive violation of Congress's power of the purse, McConnell backed him. Um, at the time, that was the thing everybody said, this is going to be the break. This is what's going to cause McConnell to break with Trump. Didn't happen. Um, and then, you know, he, he did eventually come out and acknowledge Biden's win, but he, it took him a month. And so right after the election, McConnell went to the Senate floor and said that Trump's challenges to the election were valid. And I think that institutional stamp of approval on Trump's challenges for a whole month did a lot to signal to other Republicans that they should uh, support the challenges. So I have trouble giving him credit for sort of late in the game, trying to sort of recoup some, some respect and credibility uh, and coming out for Trump. So I don't, I don't credit it as moral, unfortunately. I think it's you know, he was he was right behind Trump when it advantaged him to preserve his own power. And I think that's that's sort of just how he how he works. So we talked earlier about Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, being the two most noteworthy Democrats that are looking to preserve the filibuster because they think it will lead to some level of bipartisanship. But if you look at the stakes of current legislation that Democrats are putting forth, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, for example, uh, that would increase access to voting rights uh, for future elections. Cyclical forces indicate that Republicans could easily take back control of Congress in 2022, uh, and both both sides of, of Congress as well. Do they realize what's at stake? And, and how is the rest of the party trying to communicate and get through to them about the importance, especially at this moment in time specifically, of ending that filibuster? It's, it's not clear to me that they understand what's at stake yet, but I think I think they will be made to understand by by the, their um, colleagues, because I think initially they thought they were going to come out, they're going to have to take the stand for Senate tradition. I think they expected a lot of people to be cheering them on. I think they probably are a little bit surprised at how quick the consensus has formed against the filibuster. You have folks like David Brooks writing columns saying, "Yeah, you, Democrats should probably get rid of it." I don't think they expected that. I think they expected to have more of a cheering section. And then in addition, I think they thought by standing in support of the filibuster, they would be opposing far left policies like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. Um, but it's very clear those things couldn't pass even in a 50 vote Senate because Joe Manchin could vote against them. And that's that. Um, and, and what they're really standing in the way of are must pass things for all Democrats like voting rights uh, and other major pillars of the Biden agenda. So I think these the walls are sort of closing in on them in a way because, you know, they're not standing against far left policies. They're standing against the basic success or failure of the Biden administration and of all of their colleagues who are up on the ballot in 2022. You know, Mark Kelly, Kristen Sinema's fellow senator in Arizona, is up again in 2022 because even though he just won election, it's a special election, so he has to run again. He needs accomplishments to win. He needs to be able to go to Arizona voters and say, look at everything we accomplished, especially to withstand the historical forces you're talking about where the party that just won the White House usually loses the midterms. So I think at the end of the day, the pressure is going to build on them where their fellow colleagues and hopefully eventually the White House are going to come to them and say, look, we've tried everything. We've exhausted all attempts at bipartisanship. Just look at this Republican Party. If you think bipartisanship is just about to flourish, I don't know what you're smoking. Uh, and we got to get things done. So I think that's the pressure that's going to build on them. And I think within a relatively short amount of time, months, not years, that will become unbearable pressure for them. And I think you will see them shift. You've already seen Manchin shift a little bit, uh, which I think is very significant. Right. Last question before we let you go. Uh, you can answer this one quickly. But we recently did a Salt Talks interview with Jonathan Allen of NBC and Amy Parnas of The Hill. 
And they, based on the research they did for their book called Lucky, which is about how Biden narrowly won the election, their opinion is that Biden actually likes having Manchin and Cinema as a heat shield, he and other moderate Democrats, because they it allows them to have cover um, to not pass some of these more progressive pieces of legislation. Uh, but at the same time, they, they like the idea of, of compromise and bipartisanship as well. Do you subscribe to that notion that Biden himself uh, doesn't necessarily want rapid progressive uh, leg- legislation or do you think that's bunk? I think I think that's probably right. I think Biden is very comfortable in the middle. Um, I think some of the more uh, lefty promises he made during the campaign, you'd be happy to see those fall away, melt against the heat shield. But I think that what's going to happen is eventually, you know, it's going to become clear that it's not just the far left policies that are being blocked. It's the middle of the road policies too, like an infrastructure bill. And at that point, I think the conversation gets very serious about reform. And I think you can even expect to see the White House start to engage more seriously then because you know, they'd love to see bipartisanship flourish. Uh, Jen Psaki, uh, the White House press secretary, said recently that it was their preference not to change the, the, the filibuster rules. Um, but, you know, we all have our preferences and sometimes they don't happen. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to see that the filibuster is blocking not far left policies, but middle of the road policies, too. And at that point, uh, I think the conversation is going to get very real about reform. Well, Adam Gentleson, it's a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. The book, again, is called Kill Switch. Anthony, if you want to hold it up uh, one more time. Again, extremely timely given the environment I'm, I'm, we're in. I'm, in the Adam, see, I'm good for something on Darcy's program. See that? But in all, <laughs> He's like in a all, prop, you know? Yeah, in all, in all seriousness, it's a phenomenal book. I wish you great success with it. And uh, you got to get your name and your voice out there because what you're offering is common sense solutions to some of the policy inertia and some of the policy madness that's out there. Uh, and uh, I greatly appreciate reading it because it explained a lot of the reasons why we can't get anything done, Adam. So anyway, Kill Switch by Adam Gentleson. Uh, best of luck to you with the book. And uh, hopefully we can get you to one of our live events uh, when we get back out of the pandemic. It sounds great. It's great to be here, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's Salt Talk with Adam Gentleson, author of a new book called Kill Switch about uh, the Senate, how it was originally constructed and how it's operating in modern times. A fantastic, again, very timely book. Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes of Salt Talks, you can access our entire archive at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active, at Salt Conference. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today from Salt Talks. We hope to see you back here soon.